The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. I'm glad you're here at worship with us. Hopefully you have your Bible with you. You can turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. If you do not have a Bible, I'd like to get you one. So uh, when I dismiss a little bit later, I'd ask you to stay behind if you need a Bible and see me. I'll make sure to get your name down and, and get you one. We believe God's word is important. We believe it is true, that it is perfect. We believe that you should be reading it and knowing it. And so if you don't have a Bible, I'd like to to get you one. 1 Samuel 17 is where we're at today. I dare say it's, I don't know if I want to say it's the most famous, but it's one of the most popular chapters in in all of Scripture. Uh, Pastor Spencer was telling me this morning, he told his son, hey, today we're looking at David and Goliath. And his son said, I already know that story. I don't know. <clears throat> which, to be fair, really is the mentality of, of a lot of us, right? When we, when we come to something like this, or, or pretty soon, whether you want to or not, we'll be in Advent season, Christmas season, and we'll be looking at Christmas story together, and we get into this mentality. I've heard this before. I know this. I don't need to listen. I don't need to pay attention because I already have it. Well, I'd encourage you to listen this morning. As we look at chapter 17 uh, together in the story of David and Goliath, we need to remember where we've come from, though. Last week in 1 Samuel chapter 16 was a very pivotal, pivotal chapter in Samuel because we see that in chapter 16, God chose a king for himself, it said. And he had Samuel go and anoint David. And so David, we saw, was anointed as king of Israel by Samuel, that he was the chosen one of God. And you remember, it said that the spirit of the Lord came upon David. And at that moment, also, the very next verse, it said, and the spirit of the Lord left King Saul. So it was a very important thing. And I want that to be in our mind as we approach chapter 17, because there is a reason that chapter 17 comes after chapter 16. And it's not just numbers, okay? It's not just because, well, 17 comes after 16. No, there's a, there's a reason the writer did it this way, all right? So let's look at the first 11 verses of chapter 17 together uh, here in 1 Samuel. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Socho, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Socho and Azekah and Ephes, Damim, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff on his spear was like a weaver's beam and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels and a shield bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, 
I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel together, or when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So in these first 11 verses, we see the challenge that was put forward. The Philistine army had come up against Israel again, which seems to be a common theme uh, throughout this book. And it seems as if the Philistines have an upper hand at this moment. And the Philistines actually come up with a pretty decent solution, which you might think shows some mercy, to be honest with you. Why do all these men need to die? Why, why does all this have to happen? Let's, let's take our best and your best and let's just have, let them go at it. And let's see who wins. And so the Philistines present their best. Goliath, this man named Goliath, it says he was a champion of the Philistines. Scripture tells us here that he was a, he was a huge man. No doubt, he was, he was very big. No doubt, he was very frightful. It's not someone that you want to run into in an alley uh, by any means. We would all be scared, I'm, I'm sure. And Goliath comes forward, this big man, strong man, this champion, and he sets forth a challenge to all of Israel. And he tells them very clearly, standing in this valley, in this mountain, with all the Philistines on one side, all of Israel on the other side, no doubt looking over at Israel and saying, bring me your best. I'm the best that the Philistines have to offer. I defy your armies. I defy your God. I defy all of you. Just one of you come and fight me. If I win, we rule over you. If he wins and beats me, then we will be your servants. This is the challenge that Goliath sets forth. And it's really sad because we get to verse 11. You know, we, we see this and we think, all right, someone's going to step up. Who's going to step up here and be the person to fight? And we see in verse 11 that it, it tells us the state of Israel. Because it says when Saul and all Israel heard these words, what do they do? They're dismayed and they're greatly afraid. Dismayed and greatly afraid. Now again, this could be an understandable situation when you look at Goliath to have fear of this man, not knowing what is going to happen. But of all of Israel, if there's really one man to point out at this moment to say, what are you doing? It's Saul. Because you remember how it describes Saul when Saul was made king. He was head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. He was the biggest man of the land. He is supposed to be their warrior. He is supposed to be their fighter. And so you can look at Saul at this moment and say, what, what are you doing here as king of Israel? You, you, are, you look horrible in this situation. This big, strong guy cowering away with, with the rest of Israel. Nobody responding to this man. Nobody doing anything. Just hiding up in the mountain letting Goliath do and say whatever he wants to do or say. That's where we find ourselves in the first 11 verses. So let's continue on, verse 12. We'll go all the way to 22 right now. It says, Now David was a son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep 
at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousands, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. Now, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. Kind of fighting, just staring really. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Now, when you read this, it really is kind of confusing, I guess, to an extent, if, if you'd read First Samuel 16, because it seems like they're introducing us to David again. There's this reintroduction of this guy, his dad is Jesse, he's one of eight kids, he's got three older brothers, it's like, we know this, we already know this. And this is where I want to point out, it's important that 16 comes before 17. And David is told by his dad to go to his brothers, to the, where they are battling, and go and see how they're doing, bring this food for them, check on them, make sure everything is going okay at this time. And we see that David is obedient to his, to his father. He honors them in this. And if you notice in verse 15, I think this is kind of interesting, how it says David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Because in chapter 16, at the very end, you remember, Saul had summoned somebody to come to, to deal with this spirit that the Lord had given him that he was fighting. And his wise men found David to play the harp for him. And it said it would calm him down. And so we see here uh, that kind of correlating together, that David would go from Saul to his father and back to Saul. He was really obeying both men. He was really taking care of both, taking care of his father's sheep, and at times going before the king to play his music, to try to ease his pain from the spirit of the Lord that tortured him. And so that's what we see happening here in these verses. All of a sudden, David comes on the scene and we see him obeying his father, doing what he is supposed to do. And in 22, it says, he goes to greet his brothers. So let's continue, verse 23. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. So while David is there with his brothers, he's, he's talking with his brothers, he hears, no doubt, this, this loud voice coming from the valley. He hears this Philistine talk, this man named Goliath. And the men around him treat it as if this is a normal thing. And scripture tells us it went on for 40 days. 40 days this has happened. 
And as David looks around, it seems as if he's horrified that this just seems to be a normal situation for everybody. And I think the question that we should ask at this moment is, why is, what is making David so angry? Nobody else seems to be this angry. Nobody else in Israel seems to be so upset. King Saul himself doesn't seem to be that upset, says he's afraid, cowering. So why is David different? Why, why is David so angry at this moment? And he might say, well, maybe he's angry for, for his nation. He's mad that this Philistine is speaking this way against his people. Or maybe he's mad because of the fear that he saw within his people, within Israel. Maybe, maybe that's what's getting him so upset at this moment. Or maybe, and I doubt this is the case, maybe he's mad because he looks at Goliath and says, I can take you. He's just mad that this guy's so cocky, this guy's so angry, and he wants to put it to him. I doubt that's the situation, though. I think when we look into God's word and when we study this passage, we see that what, what David is angry with, he's so angry because what Goliath is doing here is Goliath isn't, he's not just speaking against Israel. What Goliath is doing in this situation, what he is saying is he's, he's speaking out against the God of Israel. This was very common of what you would see in war. People often would view war back then as my God against your God. The greater God is going to win here. You remember earlier in 1 Samuel that the ark, the ark of the covenant was captured by the Philistines and they took it. And you remember where they took it? They took it to their temple to put at the feet of their God, Dagon. Their God was Dagon. And you remember how that fared for Dagon? He ended up after a couple days on the ground with his head chopped off, his hands and his feet chopped off. And we saw the superiority of God and the Philistines wanted to have nothing to do. Well, it seems they forgot this at this moment. And so what Goliath is doing is he's, he's challenging Israel, yes, but he's also challenging the Lord, saying our God Dagon is better than the Lord of Israel. And so what David realizes is that this isn't just a physical fight. David understands this is a spiritual fight that is happening. It's a spiritual fight that is taking place in this moment. And what David has aroused in him, what he is so bothered by, is he is frustrated because the name of the Lord of Israel deserves to be praised, not to be blasphemed against. And this Philistine is blaspheming the name of God. And that arouses within David a problem a big frustration. And so he might have been angry with the people because as he looked all over this mountainside and as this giant is down there speaking and blaspheming God's name, as he looks around, the, the people who are supposed to be leading are cowering. The people of God who should be standing up for the name of God saying, saying don't you remember what the Lord did to Dagon earlier? How are you going to come against him now? They don't do that. Instead, they cower in the corner. You remember there's a pretty popular verse, Jesus riding into Jerusalem in the triumphant entry. And you remember some of the Pharisees would speak to him and they would ask him in, in Luke 19, he'd say, it says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, at this moment, it was almost as if the, the stones needed to cry out. Because the people of God were doing nothing. They were doing nothing as this Philistine would blaspheme his name. They would just stand there and listen and, and take it. But David was not willing to do this. While the people of Israel, 
would focus on themselves. They would see that giant and have fear and worry about themselves and their well-being. David was focused on God and his honor. Not his well-being, but that God's name should not be blasphemed like this. David's hope as he stood there was no longer in King Saul. While the people were doing exactly what Saul was doing, David would say, this is not something that I can do. I cannot sit here and cower. Instead, I need to speak, right? This is, this is wrong. I think one of the things that comes up when we read this passage, and again, this isn't the point of the passage, but it's something that I think we should think about. I know I have to think about it in my life. Is how much does it bother you when you hear the name of God blasphemed? You don't have to go very far to hear it today. Pretty much any show you watch, anything we see within media and different things, or even in conversations just with friends who aren't Christians, it's not hard to hear the name of the Lord taken in vain, which is one of the commandments, which when we talk about the Ten Commandments, it's like those are the ten easy things, right? Those are the ten easy things to do, but yet when we think about this idea of God's name being blasphemed, we understand that a lot of times that just doesn't invoke within us any hurt or any pain. It's become so casual, or maybe even in our own lives, how we can, how we can do this. And just, it doesn't bother us whatsoever at all. But yet for David, this was so serious that he would fight against a man way bigger than him to say, you you don't do this. You don't speak this way of my God. No, I'm not telling you to go out and battle your neighbor and throw stones at him in a moment. That's not, that's not what I'm getting at. Or if your boss, you know, cusses all the time for you to punch him in the face and say, hey, that's, that's wrong. That's, that's not what I'm saying. And you'll see when we get to the point of why I don't think that's our job. But I do think there are definitely times in our life and maybe yours as well. I know it has been in mine where Maybe we should speak up for the Lord, where we should say something. So, you know, I, I don't, I'd appreciate it if you don't say those things. And they might ridicule you and go on. That's okay. They have the right to do that. But I think the real question, at least for me, as I thought about this this week, is does it even bother me? Let alone say anything, but do I even notice it in the music that I listen to or the movies that I watch? or the people that I hang out with? Does it even come across in my mind anymore that what they are doing is blaspheming a holy God who has saved my soul? And do I let it move me whatsoever? I really think that's just a side note here. Well, let's continue on, verse 28. Now, Eliab, now you remember, Eliab, the oldest brother, the one who looks like a king, the one who Samuel thought, this is the guy this is him speaking. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. Now, that's confusing. Shouldn't have been against Goliath, but no, against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. <laughs> this, is, 
This is, you know, this is perfect oldest brother, youngest brother situation here. I mean, this is really, you know, here comes little David into the camp. He's got three brothers there, all these tough army men. Little David comes in. Are you guys not going to do anything about this guy? Blaspheming the name of the Lord? And David's looking around, obviously, at everybody who's around. Is no one going to step up here? Is nobody going to do anything? And Eliab, will you shut up? I know you, David. I know your heart. I know your pride. Don't you have a couple sheep you need to go run off to? Aren't there some sheep that you need to take care of? Let us men do what us men do here. You, you, you get away from this. Maybe it's a conversation you've heard in your house before. I know that I have plenty of times. But he belittles David. He tries to make David look foolish, even though he's the one that looks foolish. Even though it's the rest of Israel that looks foolish, not David. But he tries to belittle him. Really, he's trying to, in a way, justify his sin. His little brother's calling him out. His little brother's calling all of them out. And he's trying to justify his sin. Come on, come on, get, go, go to the sheep. Go deal with them. But it's interesting because this does not deter David for one second. Because in verse 29, it says he looks around to everybody and tells them all the same thing. And you can picture him responding to his brother and pointing back at Goliath, right? You can, you can picture him doing that to Eliab. You step up then. You going to do it? Oh, no? Well, then you shut up. Right? Are you going to be the man here? Anybody? Anybody in here? Are you ready to go? No? Well, then you don't talk to me. You don't, you don't have the right to come at me and say, oh, well, then go be with the sheep. Let's continue on. Verse 31. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has, died, he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag and a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, 
Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. I really find this section kind of interesting. I really think it tells us something even more about Saul, who continues his downward trend in leadership abilities. Because word gets to Saul about David running amok in camp and saying all these things. And Saul has him come to him, and David comes to him, and he's like, You're, you can't. You can't fight this guy. You're a youth. He, he's been fighting since he was a youth, and he, he is a champion. So at this point, you'd say, good job, Saul. You shouldn't send this boy out there. But then, all of a sudden, he says, all right, go ahead. So you're risking all of Israel, all of Israel, on the, on the shoulders of a teenager to fight this warrior Again, his leadership is missing some things. But he does this. He lets little old David fight this battle when it should be him. If anybody in the camp, it should be Saul. Saul should be the one fighting. Or maybe it's not fair to say the king should go fight, and that's fine. It should then be one of his warriors by his side who's in the tent with him. That what, that's what needs to happen in this situation. But here's the thing, and this is what it's going to. Saul did not choose David to fight this battle. God had already chosen David. Again, that's why 16 comes before 17. David had already been anointed. David had already been chosen. And so it wasn't Saul looking throughout his camp and saying, David is the one. Again, Saul, unbeknownst to him, because he doesn't know that David has been anointed king at this point, unbeknownst to him, what Saul is doing is Saul is letting the rightful king do what he came to do. And so God at this point had chosen David for this situation. So let's see what happens. Verse 48. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hurried and ran toward the army to the Philistines. Then David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sheriam, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Let's stop there. Again, the important thing that we notice 
is we, is we notice here that God has used his anointed one to save Israel. That's what's happening here. He's used the one that he had anointed, the king that he has chosen for himself. He used David to save Israel. And again, remember, nobody knows about David being anointed king at this time. To be honest, I'm not even sure how much David really understood it at this point. But David was the one chosen and anointed by God, and we see him here save Israel. And that God, it seems, has orchestrated this all along. It's really a situation that's hard for us to contemplate what David was thinking at this point. I, at least for me, you know, this whole David and Goliath thing is really overused, if I'm, if I'm being quite honest. I, I like to live in the sports world, and it's used all the time, no matter what the situation is. Uh, they're the Goliath, and we're David, and all this different stuff, and, and we try to rouse that up. But the fact of the matter is, in the sports world, I want to be Goliath. I want to be on Goliath's team. That's the team I want to be on. And a lot of people want to hate on those teams, because why? They win all the time. Very rarely does David step up and, and beat Goliath. Coaches try to use that whole mentality and all this, but to be honest, it doesn't work that often. I want to be on, Goliath's, on, on the side of Goliath. And so I think it gets overused. I, I think we misunderstand that. But I can't imagine that David was really excited about his situation. I can't imagine that God was doing all this so we have a, some cliche to say to our kids when we know they're going to lose, but we want them to still play and not quit. And so imagine David standing before Goliath and I wonder if maybe he thought of Psalm 3 because he would write Psalm 3. So I want to read it for you. And just thinking about this, this time of him being surrounded by thousands of Philistines, Israel on one side, them on the other, and him facing Goliath. And listen to the words of Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you... O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. I have to wonder if this was in David's heart as he faced the situation that he would face. As he looks at Goliath and he looks upon the whole army of the Philistines to think, my enemies are all around me. Arise, O Lord, and save your people. Right? Lord, do this which you said you would do. Because David knows, his, his confidence isn't in, in his sling. His confidence isn't in how good he can whip that rock. His, his confidence is in the Lord because he knows salvation belongs to the Lord. Not to me, not to you, it belongs to him. And so David finds his confidence in this. And that really is the main point of this passage. Notice here. What we want to focus on, and when we watch movies about David and Goliath, and when we talk about it with the kids, the, the fight, it's only a couple of verses, and it's honestly really boring. So if this was a movie getting to the climax of the big fight scene, 
you're going to be like, one shot and it's over? I mean, Goliath should be able to sustain like 50 bullet wounds before he dies. It should really be a battle. But it doesn't really give us much. David ran at the Philistine, took the stone out, threw it, guy died. Game over. Why is it so short? Because that's not the point of the story. The point of the story isn't the fight. The point of the story when we leave here shouldn't be, you know what, I need to buy a slingshot and practice for the Lord and get really good at the whole slingshot thing so I can go fight the giants. That's not the focus of the story. Victory was of the Lord, not of, not of David. That's the story. And who God chose to use was his anointed, not Israel's best, not the guy who could wield the sword the best, not even the guy who could wield the sling the best. What's so important in this story is that God chose to use his anointed to save Israel. Throughout this chapter, Goliath really gets a lot of the ink. He's talked about really in great detail, and he's set up as this great foe. In, in a lot of sermons that I've heard on David and Goliath, people want to talk about his height and the weight of all of his stuff. I, I, don't, I don't really want to do that. You can do that on your own if you're interested in that. But it does set him up as this great enemy and this great foe, and I, I think there's two reasons for this. Number one, it wants us to see Again, how God would use his anointed to slay this big, huge enemy and save Israel. That's important. But I think the other reason is we are to see something here. Goliath was like the biggest, badliest man you could ever find. But he is not Israel's greatest enemy. And he's not our greatest enemy. And what we see in this story is we see David, again, is pointing us, you remember this from last week's message, that David is a type of Christ here. That this story of David and Goliath is pointing us to God's anointed who would eventually defeat the real enemy. Goliath is dead and gone. Me and you don't have to worry about him anymore. He, there's nothing that he can, can do to us. But the problem is, David's dead and gone too. God's chosen king that he chose for himself died a long time ago. And he can't do anything for me anymore either. And so if I'm reading this story and the whole point is, yay, David, no more Goliath. Well, that was good for like great, 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 a lot of great grandparents of mine, but that doesn't help me in any way. What, what can King David do for me now when he's in his grave dead and gone? Well, this story is pointing us again to Christ and our great enemy. Our great enemy being, being sin. We see this in Genesis chapter four, verse seven. Like Israel with Goliath, we stand looking upon sin wondering, what do I do about it? No matter how much I try to fight it, no matter how often I try to conquer it, it's constantly there. Day in and day out, it calls out to me sin over and over and over again, making fun of me and enticing me. And over and over again, I fall short. I fall into the enemy's lap again and again and again. Do you know that story? Is that part of your story? It's part of mine. We found that no matter how hard we try, we just simply cannot rule over it. And so too often, if I'm honest with myself and with you, I find myself to be like Saul. I'm the one who should defeat that enemy because it's my sin. 
But yet I'm in my tent cowering away. I'm in my tent scared to death because I know that if I go out and try to fight again, it's going to win again. It's going to destroy me again. It's going to knock me down again and again and again. You know this story. It's your story, just like mine. We get tired of fighting this sin. And eventually we just succumb to it. We just live in it. We tend to grow comfortable in it. And who knows, maybe Saul, if you allowed him, would still be in that tent in the hill, cowering away. But thankfully, God has sent his anointed, Jesus, fully God and fully man, to come and to destroy our enemy once and for all. That while we cower in the tent, embarrassed of our sin and ashamed, knowing there's nothing that we can do, God's anointed, his one and only son, Jesus, enters the scene and destroys our enemy. Destroys our enemy. Slays sin for us. And so now, because Jesus has conquered our enemy, we have salvation through him. And not just that, Christ has then promised us for those who trust in him, who trust in his salvation, in his conquering of the enemy, Christ then has promised us the gift of the Holy Spirit in our life. So now, Jesus conquered our enemy's sin, but you and I both know that as we're saved by God's grace, we still struggle with this sin. But the amazing thing about God the Father, God the Son, and we often leave this one out, God the Holy Spirit, is that he actually then enables those who are his to overcome sin in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit so that I don't have to look outside of my tent and say, I'm just going to lose again. I can actually look outside of my tent and say, Christ defeated it once and for all. And I can go out there and fight this battle. And here's the thing. Even if sin knocks me down, guess what? Christ already beat him for me. But he's given me the power to overcome this. So I, I can overcome talking that way. I can overcome thinking these things. I can overcome these sins in my life that continually plague me. I actually can overcome them through the power of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus and his victory. It's interesting, after David would fight this battle, all of a sudden the Israelites had some guts, didn't they? All of a sudden they attacked. All of a sudden the Philistines ran. And there was a decisive victory that day. They, they, they fled all over the place, the Philistines, and the Israelites, when they got tired of killing them, went back and took all their stuff and took it home. We do the same thing. We look at sin and we can look sin in the eye and say, I am not scared of you anymore because I have victory over you through Christ. There's nothing that you can do to me any longer. You cannot hold me down. You cannot chain me down because the anointed one has come and saved me, has saved my soul. For far too long, we've looked at the story of David and Goliath and we've said that we're David. I'm sorry to break your bubble. You are not David. You're not God's anointed. You're not God's chosen one. You can never kill the sin, that enemy. You can never do it. You can sling as many stones as you want. I promise you, you're gonna miss every time. Many of you are trying that though. 
You are trying to be David. You're trying to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You're trying to polish a stone and you keep saying, well, that stone was a little lopsided. I got to find a smoother one. I got to find a smoother one. And you keep looking for these things that you can do in your life to conquer your enemy, to conquer your sin. And I got to tell you, it's not your job. You can't do it. Christ has already done it for you. You are laboring in vain. There's no need to throw out your shoulder and need rotator cuff surgery, slinging the rocks all the time. Christ has done it for you. You just need to understand that. You need to believe that and accept that in your life by faith. And then he is your victor. Your enemy is done because he's counted it for you. I want to read Psalm 34. I only have a couple verses on the screen, but I'd, I'd encourage you to turn to it. I'm going to as well, my Bible. Psalm 34. In Psalm 34, what we have is we have a situation where <clears throat> pretty soon we're going to see in 1 Samuel. David would make a pretty bad decision. He'd, he'd be fleeing from Saul, and he actually flees to the Philistines. And he goes to the king of the Philistines, and he realizes that he makes a mistake, and he actually wins an award for acting crazy. So he acts completely crazy and mad to try to save himself and the situation that he has put himself in. And Psalm 34 is written in light of this. David writes this in light of of what we are going to read, but I, I think that it fits in well here with the truths that we see in Psalm 34. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. See, again, his name needs to be exalted. That was a big thing with David. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. David would say, this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Stop there. David got him into his troubles. David was his own worst enemy. He had created this situation, but yet he understands that the Lord saves him out of his troubles. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, I don't know if David knew this, but he was prophesying here in these last verses. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. 
The Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. When we read that Psalm, what we see is we see David understanding that he had put himself in a situation that he could not get out of. Bad, silly, foolish mistakes that he made. Remember, this is God's chosen anointed one, but yet he makes these bad, silly mistakes. And yet God saves him out of his mistakes. Even David recognized this as his anointed one, that he wasn't the anointed one. That even him himself would make mistakes being God's chosen king. And there was one that he must look to for his own hope and his salvation. And he prophesies there in verse 20, not a bone of his will be broken. This is referencing Jesus, who though they crucify him, though they beat him, not one bone would they break of his body. And he is our salvation. He is our Lord. Christ went to that cross. Why? Because you have made dumb mistake after dumb mistake, and it is the Lord who will save you, not you. That's what we pull from David and Goliath. That's what we see here in this chapter. Now, I know there's a couple more verses about Saul uh, interacting with, with David a little bit that can be confusing, and maybe we'll talk about that some other time. But I, I think we're really left with the question this morning. Is do we honor the name of the Lord like we should? Do we really have a desire to hear his name honored above all things? Have we trusted in Jesus Christ, the anointed one, and trusted him for our salvation. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then I thought about this question in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 16. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And it's interesting how Peter replies. Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter responds, you are the anointed one. You are the chosen one. You are the salvation of Israel. You are the salvation for people. That question still rings true to us today. Who do you, who do you say that I am? Just a good teacher? A reliable rabbit's foot that I can maybe trust for some luck? Or do you say to Jesus, you are the anointed one, my salvation, my Messiah, my hope, I hope it's not found in me. It's found in you and what you have done. I hope that's the truth in your life this morning. I'm gonna ask if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes with me. We're gonna respond to God's word this morning. We're gonna sing a song like we do each week. And when we sing this song, it gives you an opportunity to respond how you see that you should. My prayer is that today, some of you, for the first time, will maybe see that Jesus is your anointed one who's come to save your soul so that you could be a child of God, an heir to the throne, be able to cry out to the Father, just that, Father, because you know he loves you. I hope that that's true in somebody's life this morning.
for those of us who've been saved by his grace, I hope we respond by honoring his great name and praising him for killing Goliath for us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you how you can take a story that we read to our kids, that we at times fancy up, and do different things with, but God, you can take that and even into our old age, see the truth of it, of why it's there. How you would anoint David as king, the chapter before. And just by, it just so happens in chapter 17, there he is, your anointed, slaying Israel's great enemy, killing him with one strike. No sword needed, no spear needed, but you doing that decisive victory through him. God, I pray that we would understand this morning in here that that is still true, that Jesus Christ has come, your anointed one, your only begotten son, who would come and live a perfect life, but yet bear the sin, my sin, on the cross. Because God, I couldn't do it. God, you've won that victory for me. As David would say, as I feel surrounded by thousands of enemies all around me, the Lord is my salvation. Not me, but Christ. So God, I pray that this morning, I know no doubt there's people here who've never trusted in Christ as their Savior. I pray that you'd open their eyes to that truth this morning. Help them to see that. Help them to, by faith, believe that. God, for those of us who've been saved by your grace, I pray that we'd never get used to it but that we'd be in awe of it over and over and over again. God, as we see in our lives, even now as Christians, how we can have victories over sin, but yet still we, we fall short so often. But again, knowing that it's not by my righteousness that I live, it's by Jesus' righteousness. And so God, I, I thank you for your salvation. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you help us to continue to grow in you. God, as we sing this song now, I pray that we would praise your name. I pray that we'd honor you in everything we sing. That it really would be from our heart. That you'd help us to respond to your word how we should now. So God, please help us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.